Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week. 95.1. Here on KYMN Radio. Apologies. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we take a look at a specific policy subject. We have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gannet on policy subjects. From neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national level issues, everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about the important policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I am not Nathan Leaf. My name is Rich Larson. I'll be sitting in this chair for a few more minutes until Nathan Leaf is ready. Uh, uh, Nathan will be one of your hosts for this morning's show. And in the chair next to me is Joe Moroff. Joe Moravchik. Joe, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Rich, today we welcome two prominent educators, Dr. Matt Hillman, superintendent of Northfield Public Schools, and Dr. Kent Pakel, superintendent of Rochester Public Schools, to help us understand the status and challenges of civics education in the state of Minnesota. It is fitting that during the same week we celebrate Constitution Day, September 17th, we discuss civics. Dr. Matt Hillman has served in the Northfield School District for 14 years, currently a superintendent of Northfield Public Schools since 2016, a role for which he was recently named 2023 Minnesota Superintendent of the Year by the Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Prior to this, Dr. Hillman worked as the Director of Administrative Services and as the Director of Human Resources and Technology. Before coming to Northfield Public Schools, Dr. Hillman served as a principal Director of Curriculum and Technology, and the District Assessment Coordinator for Belle Plaine Public Schools. Dr. Hillman began his career in education as a teacher in Medalia Public Schools. He holds a BA degree from St. John's University in New York and a doctorate from Minnesota State University in Mankato. Dr. Kent Bakel accepted the position of superintendent of Rochester Public Schools in 2022 after serving for a year as an interim superintendent. Dr. Bakel previously served as president and CEO of Search Institute, a not-for-profit organization that conducts applied research to promote positive youth development and advance equity. Before moving to Search Institute in 2012, Dr. Pakel served as the founding executive director of the University of Minnesota's College Readiness Consortium, and as Executive Director of Research and Development in the St. Paul Public Schools. He served in several senior staff positions during the Clinton administration, including as a White House Fellow assigned to the Director of the CIA, Special Advisor to the Deputy Secretary of State, and Special Assistant to the Deputy Secretary of Education. Dr. Pakel began his career as a high school teacher in his home state of Minnesota. He holds a B.A. in East Asian Studies from Yale University, a Master's in Education from Harvard University, and a Doctorate in Education from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Matt Hillman, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you. Appreciate it. Always happy to be here. And Dr. Pakel, welcome. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Anytime I get to spend some time with Matt is an honor and a privilege and always a lot of fun. So great to be here. Dr. Hillman joins Nathan and I and Rich in the KYMN studios here in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield. Uh, Dr. Pakel, where are you at this morning? I'm in the heart of even more beautiful downtown Rochester. Um, Well, just a little outside downtown, actually. I'm in our school district uh, central office. Well, I'm looking very forward to, to today's conversation. I hadn't in, intended to, to uh, participate. I was going to sit and just run the board, but I'm looking forward to being a, uh, uh, to having at least part of this conversation with you. Before we dig into the details of civics ed- education in Minnesota, I want to hear a, a bit from each of you about how your experiences in the education space uh, have shaped your perspectives on recent events uh, and recent trends in American civic life. Those trends are mixed. On the one hand, recent voter participation in the United States is at record highs. And, of course, Minnesota is one of the leaders in voter turnout. Uh, So the U.S. is catching up to many European peer nations in voting metrics. 
On the other hand, surveys show that the public knowledge of details of the U.S. government and the Constitution is surprisingly poor among Americans, and our political discourse and political identification have become extremely polarized over the last several decades. Public opinion polling of Congress, the Supreme Court, and the executive branch reveal historically low favorability ratings for all three with the American public. Can each of you tell us how these trends and this evolution of our political climate over the course of your careers has impacted your views on the roles of civics education both across the nation and here in Minnesota? Dr. Hillman, we'll start with you. So I I think back to when I first remember uh, becoming civic-minded, if you will. That's a term we used to use pretty regularly, right, being civic-minded. And what I'm going to share with you is something I just don't see any pathway to what could happen today. But in 1980, in the fall of 1980, when I was a fourth grader at Watkins Glen Elementary School in Watkins Glen, New York, uh, the school principal had a couple of students go on the public address announce uh, over the the PA system uh, to advocate for each of the presidential candidates in that hmm. election. I'm not going to tell you who I was selected to advocate for, um, but I think that we we know uh, as the superintendent of schools, I'm going to tell you I would get calls about that today <laughs> if we were to do uh, something like that. And yet, I think at that time that was just part of the expectation. We're going to teach people how to become civically engaged. We're going to understand that people have different perspectives and those different perspectives uh, we may vehemently disagree with, but we're going to uh, fight to the end to make sure you have the right uh, to have that disagreement. Uh, I also think about the kinds of community organizations that uh, really were, if you think about the opportunities for kids today, there are so many more chances for kids to participate in activities. Youth sports you know, is so uh, just so ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. When when the three of us were growing up, there were less opportunities, formal opportunities like that. Something I participated in was 4-H, and I learned a lot about parliamentary procedure and thus civics by being in a 4-H club because you ran every meeting right by uh, Robert's Rules of Order, and so those things were just seemed to be baked into lots of different parts of my life. I had a wonderful student council advisor. I was an elected officer in our student council all four years of high school, and Nick Dugo was my teacher. And just, again, um, the, the, those kinds of things that, that were really commonplace, I think, with the competition for everyone's time, we have so much more competition for our time. I don't think we have that integration of being uh, focusing on civics like we once did. And of course, as you fast forward to today, the just the culture that we're in right now of disagreement and the ability to for people to really um, communicate in a stream of consciousness way. I'm an advocate that everyone should have an editor. Um, there are far too many people who don't have an editor. There's one thing to think something. There's another thing to articulate it. And just because of the lack of any kind of pause button that we have, we can really go down this fireball trail very quickly. And then people come back and say, nope, back to your corners. We're not going to talk about this anymore. That is not healthy. Uh, for our democracy, in my opinion. And so I, I just I give you that personal experience to juxtapose that against today. Now, that that's a national narrative that I share, and throughout today's show, I'll, I'll share how we're really um, defining that national narrative here in Northfield. I'd just like to say, as a writer, I've always said that editors make me smarter. So, Dr. Bakel, how about you? Uh, I would agree with Matt that there has been a diminishing of the role of civics in general in schools, and like in everything, there's exceptions to that. I think one way maybe to characterize what Matt said, which is my experience too, it's it's still taught, of course, but it's a subject embedded in a class as opposed to a school-wide priority and something that's like in in the culture of the school. So Matt's example of a kid getting on the um, or students getting on the announcements and talking about political election is actually a great example of that. That's a school-wide emphasis, not just, you know, something that a social studies teacher is teaching. Um, I started my career teaching social studies. I taught world history and global studies, so I didn't teach civics, but I it, you know, it, I, I touch it all, all the time. And I'd probably say the biggest, the biggest change tied to the political culture shifts that Matt was talking about, you know, with, with this sense of divisions in society I would never have predicted that in 2023, we as a country would be having a serious discussion about whether change can be advanced through governmental institutions. 
that back in the 90s when I started teaching, the, the question was, of course it can be, and that is the primary vehicle through which you get stuff done. You pass laws, you win elections, um, you get judges on courts, all the stuff you study in civics. And, and we literally today are having a major discussion, obviously tied to the you know insurrection um, in D.C. and things around that, where the, the fundamental question of the degree to which change can and should be achieved through governmental institutions is a question. And so if I was teaching civics today, I would be grappling with that issue really profoundly. And I think you're right when you say voting rates are up among this generation. Uh, this is an energized youth generation. They're not waiting around for adults to ask them to have opinions or to want to engage in the world. I think there is a question as to whether they see the vehicles of government, the civic infrastructure, as a useful way to get stuff done. So I would, I would, I would be having those discussions in my civics classroom if I was teaching it right now, and I would never have thought that would be a relevant question uh, several decades ago. It's clear that the founding fathers of the United States in the late 1700s agreed that the vision of the democracy required the citizenry to be adequately educated as participants in the civic process. And they advocated for a great deal of attention to civics education in those formative years. With that foundational tradition in mind, how would you describe the current state of civics education in Minnesota schools? Matt, go ahead. Yes, I think whenever we talk about um, the state of anything in Minnesota schools, we have to remember that school districts are a microcosm of their community. So we play a central role, but not the only role in this particular area as with with all others. So there's a couple of things uh, I would think about here. First of all, I think as important, the gateway to civics is literacy. And so we cannot have an informed electorate without people who can read well. So focusing on making sure uh, that all students can read proficiently, I think, is one of the first steps in civic education. Uh, The second part is making sure that we have uh, the best teachers. And we have some really great teachers in this state. We have highly qualified teachers right here in Northfield. We have how much better does it get uh, to have your civics teacher have been a long-time Minnesota State Senator Kevin Dahl hmm. is the primary uh, one of the primary teachers of civics um, in our uh, high school. Now, agree or disagree with the politics that Kevin had when he was in the legislature, he understands the system. And if we think about teaching civics, what we're we're not teaching a partisan. We are talking about politics, right. and people start to shy away from that. But what civics is intended to do is to talk about politics, but not be partisan. And there's a significant difference there. So when you have someone who has lived it and can talk about firsthand experience, and we have a lot of people through the state who are highly effective educators. I think the current state is also very challenging as well. I think we cannot underestimate the, um, I'm going to use the term fear, that some people have about becoming the next uh, viral tweet uh, mm-hmm. or whatever they call it now, viral post. Yeah. Um because there are people who will take a snippet of what someone says and mischaracterize it. That's a lot of pressure on our teachers. So does that we we would be foolish to think that that fear does not have an impact on how we teach civics. It certainly does because uh, a student goes home and shares something with a parent out of context and we don't talk to each other anymore about those things. We just immediately go with our grievances online. Yeah. Not an effective decision-making or uh, conflict resolution process. Um, but I think we have a lot of great instruction happening. So it's both that great instruction, the challenges that are we're facing through a society. But I also want to emphasize one of our strategic commitments in Northfield is partnerships. We have some great partnerships around this. So we have a partnership with our YMCA. We have an incredible youth in government program. Hmm. And so if you've ever heard of the youth in government program, they actually uh, we have a local program here in Northfield, and then they go to the capital and. They actually roll through the, the entire uh, legislative-making process. They elect representatives. They All of those kinds of things that we need to know about the civic process. Um, we also have students who participate in Model UN, a different level of civics. And then I think when we talk about civics, we only really think about the legislature, but we also need to think about the courts. And we have a very successful mock trial team at Northfield High School. So it isn't just about the classroom instruction. It's all about all of those other wraparound experiences that students can have. So I would say that the 
foundation is there. And in some cases, we just need to give permission to our people to make sure that we are teaching the civics, the political part that goes with that, but avoiding the partisanship. Hmm. Ken, can you add to that? Um, I think that, well, obviously, I agree with all those things that Matt said. I think when it comes to things like youth government, which are these these amazing vehicles, uh, often for young people who end up going on to run for office and stuff, we need to make sure that we are getting, uh, uh, creating space for kids from historically marginalized communities to be in those programs as well. So they aren't just kind of white guys like Matt and I, which is, I know, not necessarily the case, but that's, that's always a priority to, um, to open those kind of things outside the classroom because some students face kind of either barriers to participating in opportunities like that, or maybe they just don't see it as, as sort of something that kids like them do. I think within the classroom, one of the challenges and opportunities with today's young people, who, as I mentioned before, and, and this isn't just my opinion, surveys have shown this, it is a very uh, engaged generation in terms of issues they care about, you know, things like global warming and inequality and, and things like that. Um, there is a need to connect the civics curriculum to those concerns um, so that it's not just learning about the uh, mechanics of government, but connecting the mechanics of government to those things that the kids care about. When I was uh, with the nonprofit organization Search Institute, we worked all over the country with schools and also out-of-school time programs. And I remember I was doing some work, um, and our work was on relationships, um, not so much civics, but I was doing some work in the Boston area, and I was at a Boston uh, public high school in the city of Boston, and in their civics class, the kids were engaged in what um, they called action civics, and they had identified an issue in their community that they really cared about, and they were um, using the mechanics of city government to try and address that issue, and of course, in the process, learning civics. So the issue that they picked at that high school was gentrification of their neighborhood. Their neighborhood was an urban neighborhood. Most of these were kids living in families of pretty modest means. And their neighborhood was becoming a very desirable place for young professionals who were, of course, driving up housing prices. And um, some good things were happening, but, but the kids' fear was that their families would be driven out. And so they were studying that issue, and they were uh, writing letters to city council members, and they were... Um, uh, writing, they had a petition, and that has stayed in my head because it was a really compelling example of education that married the mechanics of civics with the student uh, priorities. And um, I'd like to see more of that here in Rochester. We have, we definitely have some of it, but as we move into the next phase of our strategic plan, youth voice and youth leadership are going to be a major priority. And I think civics is a great, a great vehicle for helping kids understand. Um, how the system can be used to address uh, their concerns. Matt, how do you integrate state goals and objectives into your local curriculum? So in Minnesota, we're required by law to follow the state academic standards. So there is a set of social studies academic standards that were most recently updated in 2011. Uh, they've been going through a process of being updated, and as one might imagine, there's been a little bit of controversy about that, so it's been pushed out a, a couple of years yet. So we start with the state standards. That is what we teach. And then we adopt local curricula and activities that are designed to meet those state standards. So uh, there's a, a common set of standards that all Minnesota schools, regardless of whether you're in Albert Lee or War Road, hmm. that you're expected to teach. But the local, um, the local governance comes in in terms of what resources do you use to teach that. So uh, you're going to see uh, a little bit of a different approach across uh, all schools in Minnesota, but they're all going to come back to those same standards and benchmarks. And one example to, to go with what Kent said is how these kinds of things can vary between locations. Uh, our high school is part of this process has been running a charity election, right, where they have students vote on a charity in which they're going to uh, create a donation for. So that's a way, like Kent said, to make the concepts relevant to the students in the classroom because Kent is absolutely right. It doesn't matter whether it's mathematics, whether it's uh, literature or social studies. If kids don't have a connection to it, it's wah, 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 wah. And so that's the, and that's one of the reasons I'm actually quite excited for the state law change for government and citizenship to be taught in 11th and 12th grade now, which we can talk about a little bit down the line. Right now, most schools 
in Minnesota teach uh, what we call civics in ninth grade. And for some time, I have supported the concept of moving that to 11th grade because the reasons exactly that Kent has shared. Uh, I think that our young people are engaged. But when you think about um, the developmental appropriateness of, of being able to engage in that in ninth graders versus 11th graders, who yeah. some of whom are ready to are already eligible to vote or who will be very soon, just that um, that distance from how far away you are for to, to be eligible to vote, I do think makes a difference. So we're excited to see this change over the next couple of years. Gentlemen, how, how is the effectiveness of the civics education programs in each of your districts measured and assessed? And how much coordination is there across districts statewide to perform those assessments? You want to start, Kent? Sure. Um, the, the, the honest and short answer is, at least in Rochester, it's not. Um, the state of Minnesota, actually, there's legislation that prohibits the creation of a, um, a test for social studies. It actually is true for health and physical education and the arts as well. Um, in terms of like, like the state tests like they have in reading and math and science. And so there, there are some uh, kind of, you know, civic test you know requirements and and there there has historically been um uh, a kind of a graduation requirement but it's very different from those core academic subjects reading math and science where you have you know the annual tests to measure the standards i i think there's a positive uh consequence to that which is that uh there's a lot of room for creativity to bring the standards to life in civics for for individual teachers or, or for schools and districts the you know the, the 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 con to it is that there isn't at least to my knowledge a way to assess the state of students civic knowledge except for the periodic surveys that get done that ask kids like how much do you know about the constitution or do you know who the vice president is and things like that um which are one measure i mean those are sort of usually fact recall um, or do you know the, the branches of government? Um, but it's not a very systematic way to assess the degree to which kids really, you know, firmly understand the core concepts that undergird uh, civics education. Yeah, and I think that it is uh, this this piece about how we measure it uh, is interesting. I think there's a variety of different ways to measure it. Uh, Dr. Pagel is right. You know, in fact, the 2023 there there was a a requirement that was, again, you should do this, but you can determine how you want to do it locally. Um, I think it was the 2017 or 2018 legislature did um, say that schools needed to test civics. And what it was is you were supposed to provide at least 50 of the 100 questions from the U.S. Customs and Immigration uh, Services civics test. And so that was starting for students who were in ninth grade in 2017, 18 or later. This most recent legislative session did away with that requirement. And so in Northfield, what I can share with you is that uh, we have done uh, the 50 questions. Uh, our understanding was that the state requirement was the passing score was 60%. You didn't even have to put it on a transcript. You just had to essentially give the test. Um, our local Northfield requirement was to achieve 70% on that. And uh, between uh, 11 sections, I can give you the data from 11 sections from 21 to 2023, uh, in uh, Kevin Dahl's civics classes, 276 students took the required civics test between uh, January of 21 and January of 2023, um, and they had 83.16% of those students uh, was the average score for all of those test takers. So the vast majority of them being successful on that. But again, the question is, that's that short-term piece when I'm in ninth grade, when it's not necessarily as relevant to me as it could be, I think you will see a little bit of a different component uh, when you get uh, the requirement to be in 11th grade. But we come back to that it's, I know that it infuriates people that when, uh, you know, Jay Leno used to go out the, on the street and say, tell us this. And they say, well, what are you doing? Well, we are teaching these things. And at the, that moment when you're 14, the data shows that you generally have an idea. But guess what? There's a lot of other things going on in 14-year-olds' minds that doesn't necessarily translate this to long-term memory. And it's not until you have that relevance to be able to get engaged. So there's one thing between measurement, which we, of course, believe in, um, but there's another thing of being able to show it and, and action. I always wish we could have something that I call delayed grading, right? I don't care what you get on the test right now. What I'm curious about is can I come to you as a 22-year-old and tell me how you're applying what I learned uh, in my civics class? We can't do that, obviously. That would be, in Matt Hillman's ideal world, that would be what it is. Um, but 
that's the data that we have for right now, and uh, we, the, that test is no longer going to be required to pr be provided locally. Again, there was nothing. You didn't have to put it on a transcript. You didn't have to do anything else with it. Um, but the data that I just shared with you, again, I think most of us would agree 83% uh, is probably better than if we were to do the man on the street or the person on the street here in downtown Northfield. I think we'd be better than average, right? But I'm guessing 83% might be better than most of the responses we get on the corner of Division and 5th Street. Without a doubt. For our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host Joe Moravchik and I are talking with Dr. Matt Hillman and Dr. Kent Pickell about civics education in the state of Minnesota. Kent, in our second segment, let's get into some details about civics education here in the state of Minnesota. Can you describe the curriculum and teaching methods used to educate our students about civics? Um, as Matt explained, there, there are standards in the state for um, civics, but there is not a uniform curriculum. There actually isn't a uniform curriculum for reading or math either. Those are local decisions, and so school districts make decisions um, about uh, curriculum. And in the case of civics, I think a lot of cases it's it's left to the individual teacher with guidance, but there are exceptions to that. In Rochester, we definitely adhere to the state standards, and then the civics teachers um, in our high schools do uh, bring that to life. And it looks quite different from classroom to classroom. Um, like in any subject area, there are going to be places where I think the instruction is fairly lecture-heavy, um, which is, of course, one way of teaching. What I think we get really excited about is when the teachers are finding ways to make civics interactive and engaging. And, you know, I've only been in Rochester for a couple of years, but we have an amazing civics teacher, Seth Lutke, at John Marshall High School. And he does stuff like kids engaging in a mock Congress where they're writing bills um, that could be introduced in Congress. Um, he has them do when they're learning the, the vocabulary of civics, which... Um, actually is quite important to be able to follow things but is not particularly exciting they write vocabulary poems using these terms um, they actually read the foundational federalist 10 and brutus 1 documents that are really about uh what should how much power should the federal government have and they do this very cool jigsaw process where they each get a section of the document which is very hard to read of course um it's written um for the in the 17 language of the 1700s and they they put that passage into their own words in small groups, and then they bring the jigsaw together and they reassemble it, and they compare what separate groups came up with to what the teacher came up with as a paraphrasing of the core arguments. And so they're really learning this foundational question of how much power the federal government should have, should have uh, which remains an issue today, but they're doing it in this very interactive, uh, engaging way. Um, and we have another teacher, Sam Pfeiffer, who's at our online school, and he takes advantage of the fact that it's online to have a, a lot of political leaders come in and interact with kids because they don't have to actually drive to the school, which can be a challenge. Um, and he is, uh, as I'm glad he is, scrupulously bipartisan. So this month he's going to have Senator Liz Bolden, uh, who is a DFLer, and Senator Carla Nelson, who's a Republican, and they're both going to be there interacting with his students. And so I, I think that's just sort of another example of the kind of instruction and curriculum that is more likely to frankly engage kids and really help them understand the core concepts of civics than sort of uh, lecture-based uh, description of the branches of government and things like that. Though there is a place for that uh, as well, um, it's just not probably what's going to uh, generate the next generation of our, our political visionaries uh, as much as the kind of stuff that Sam and Seth are doing in their classrooms. Hmm. Matt, you briefly introduced us to the Youth on Boards program here in Northfield, for which the school district earned an award from the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs in 2019. What has been the impact of that program in Northfield? Well, I think we're still seeing, uh, we're still learning what the impact is because we are creating curious and engaged uh, citizens 
who are going out and understand that democracy is not a spectator sport. So uh, the Youth on Boards program in Northfield was really started, uh, Mayor Dana Graham started the um, Mayor's Youth Council um, probably 10 years ago now. And that morphed into this Youth on Boards program, which includes both a Mayor's Youth Council and a District Youth Council. So we have 20-some uh, high school students who serve on the District Youth Council, a number of others who serve on the Mayor's Youth Council, even more who are involved. So we have, at any given year, we have over 70 high school students who are involved in over 30 boards and commissions throughout the city of Northfield. So it could be uh, city-based committees like the Parks Committee. Uh, we have a student on every one of our school board, at least one student on every one of our school board uh, committees. So for example, our district policy committee, we have two district youth council students who attend those meetings alongside uh, board members and myself, mm-hmm. actually reviewing school district policy before it goes to the board for update and providing their feedback. You'll see, and I'm, I'm not being critical of this, but you'll see some communities where the extent of this is having a student school board member, and that's certainly a valuable piece. What we want is we want to give as many students to Dr. Pakel's point before, how do we make sure that every student um, and that our demographics of our school are well represented on all of these committees? And when you have one or two student school board members, you're not able to do that. But the approach that we've used to put students on uh, committees that are real work you're actually rolling up your sleeves and doing the real work alongside elected officials. It's very meaningful. My favorite story is from uh, a city of Northfield um, committee where they were talking about where to put a a bike lane uh, or bike path. Let's not use the term bike lane in Northfield right now, but bike path. And the student made a suggestion about rerouting it so that it was closer to one of our schools that has less enrollment near our ALC. And the people on that committee said, we would have never thought of that had you not been here. So this this student is one real-world example of how when you step up and you enter to the arena and you're willing to share your perspective, that your opinion makes a difference. And what I will tell those kids at the beginning of every year is when you step into these committees, when you talk, the adults in the room actually stop what they're doing, they put their phones down, and they really focus on what you're saying and what you share makes a difference. In our school district, uh, our land acknowledgement statement that we adopted as a policy came from our district youth council it came from them saying we want this to happen and so we coached them on here's how you have to do it you have to suggest a policy you have to bring it before the district policy committee it has to be approved by the board i'm not sure there's much more than that of active learning that can happen other than what i just described so i think that is our our youth on boards program has had a great impact immediately but it's really exciting to see the leaders who are part of that who are now going off and being civically engaged themselves, because that's really the measure, in my humble but deadly accurate opinion. <laughs> Along those lines, uh, Dr. Pakel, your experience as CEO at Search Institute was centered on this concept of developmental relationships for youth as a key to their growth and ability to learn. Can you talk more about the roles of relationship building, community engagement, and experiential learning in fostering a more effective civics education program? Yeah, it actually it applies uh, to civics, but it also applies to math and reading and anything else we do in school. And that is that relationships are like the active ingredient in a product, like toothpaste with fluoride. You, you could brush your teeth all day. And if you don't have fluoride in that toothpaste, you are going to get less cavity protection than you would if you had toothpaste with fluoride. Or sometimes people find the fluoride analogy a little less inspiring than like yeast in bread. Like the bread is not going to rise if you don't have the yeast. Um, For education, that relationship is that active ingredient. You can have the curriculum beautifully designed. You can have the tests beautifully designed. You can have a classroom management down to a T. But if you don't have that relationship, then you're missing that active ingredient. The, the reason we launched the program of research that I led for a decade was not because anybody needed us to prove that relationships matter. It was because we needed to actually figure out what was inside those relationships that are not just close, but they're developmental. They're propulsive. They help a kid uh, go from point A to point B or master a skill in class or get through a huge challenge in their family. And so through research in schools, families, and out-of-school time programs, we identified these five critical elements of a developmental relationship, each of which also had subparts. But the big five were expressing care, challenging growth, providing support, 
sharing power and expanding possibilities. And we could show that when young people experienced relationships with adults that were characterized by high levels of those five, their um, academic motivation was better, their um, risk behaviors were lower, their social emotional competencies were stronger, their grades were better, and actually in a couple samples, even their test scores were, were uh, better, though that didn't, test scores usually didn't get connected to it. So when you think about the discussion we're having here around civics, um, if you're teaching civics um, and you have not been intentional about creating those kinds of developmental connections with the students in your classroom, there's a good reason to believe that um, the learning is going to be less effective than if you've been really attentive to the relationships. And, you know, sometimes teachers need to build that relationship kind of aside from the curriculum. Like, I'm just trying to get to know you as a student outside the context of civics class. That's really important. So you got to make space for that in the class. But really where the magic happens is when you build the relational connection into the teaching and the learning. And so like the examples that I was giving you just uh, a moment ago from what um, Seth Lecky does at John Marshall High School here in Rochester is a great example because all of those things are highly relational ways in which he as the teacher is engaging with the kids on the content of civics in a very developmental way. And that's really where you get that kind of, um, you know, magic experience that probably all of us remember from our best experiences in school. Um, it's usually about that teacher who is transformative, not the specifics of the curriculum that uh, they were teaching at the time. So that would be, uh, I think, the biggest application of the work we did at Search Institute to the discussion that we're, that we're having today. Well, equity and access to opportunity were also central themes of the work you did at Search Institute. So I'm curious, Dr. Pickell, how do each of you ensure that civics education in your districts is inclusive and representative of Minnesota's diverse population? Well, you make sure that the um, exemplars that you're using, the historical context is inclusive of diverse communities, especially communities that are historically marginalized. I think that's that's been happening um, uh, to varying degrees in schools. Um, I think we're on the cusp of a pretty important next step as a state. Um, and the, the social studies standards uh, from 2022 include a new ethnic studies strand. And so there's a very clear overlap between uh, equity and understanding of communities that um, uh, have historically been marginalized in different ways and that new ethnic studies strand that all schools are going to be required to bring to life. We've had um, ethnic studies elective in our three high schools and it has been extremely popular. It has been popular in particular with students of color, but um, it's been popular with white kids as well. And it's really been just, you know, one elective class, but I'd like to grow it over time and the new social studies uh, expectation is going to require that all schools integrate that at some level. And I think going down the road, it's not only about students seeing themselves represented in the curriculum, it's also continuing to make sure that they see themselves represented in their faculty, right, in the social studies faculty. In Northfield, we do have a Grow Your Own grant that we're working on. We're just in the first couple of years of that. So those things matter, right, in terms of seeing yourself both in the curriculum and the people who are teaching the curriculum. Um, I've described today a number of the participatory kinds of opportunities that our students have to do this act of learning. And that's also about making sure that the adults um, intentionally invite a diverse student population to participate. So making sure that we are uh, paying attention to the demographics of our youth on boards and when we uh, our local Rotary Club sends students to the Rotary Youth Leadership um, Program, are we intentionally making sure that the representation of those students also is in alignment with what the demographics are of our school district? And you have to really be intentional about that. Even well-meaning people can get down the road of not inviting people from traditionally marginalized demographic groups, as Dr. Pickell has said, it, it takes some intentionality to make sure most people who want to get involved in these kinds of things were tapped on the shoulder by someone. And so making sure that we think uh, intentionally about who are we tapping on the sh shoulder is a very important part of that participatory curriculum, if you will. Gentlemen, Rich mentioned earlier that Minnesota ranks 
at or very near the top in voter participation and other civic engagement scores among U.S. states. Education has a big role in that, no doubt. Is civic engagement emphasized in our curriculum in Minnesota? Is Minnesota civics curriculum unique in the United States? Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I I have not studied all 50 states' approaches, but uh, we do know that Minnesotans understand that democracy is not a spectator sport, and there is a lo- there is a statewide culture of participation, mm-hmm. and I think that that it does start with modeling. Right, the adults do need to model healthy civic engagement for the students uh, that they serve, and that's uh, the people down the block. That's the teachers at my school. That's the people at my church. So in terms of the how, how the civics curriculum handles, I'm, I'm not sure it's probably all that different from state to state overall. I think, in my opinion, it's more about the culture of the state. I think we have some really great tools. Uh, for example, locally here, uh, the League of Women Voters, uh, a really outstanding nonpartisan group that focuses on making sure that people get registered to vote, that they have information of what they need to be able to make these decisions, and that they're saying we're not sure we, we, we don't care who you vote for, we want you to vote and we want you to be educated. So I think it's the civics education is a portion of it. I would venture to guess that the standards are and Kent has as from his search institute experience probably has a better broad view than I do. Uh, my sense is they're probably not all that different uh, across the country. But here, it's expected that you're going to participate. And like anything else, when we have expectations for each other, we tend to meet them. Kent, your, your thoughts on civic engagement emphasized in our curriculum here in Minnesota and any uniqueness that we have here? Yeah, you know, I'm not, it's, it's, a good, it's an interesting question. I'm not sure how we compare to other states. It is covered in Minnesota standards, and so it's definitely covered. I think one thing that most social studies teachers try and do here that is actually really important and sometimes is overlooked is the nuts and bolts. Like literally, where do you go vote? How, you know, at mm-hmm. what, what days and where can you vote? Like if we don't start to help kids understand that, it's something that I think uh, it, they're less like, we know just from life in general and also from a lot of research, people are less likely to do it if you don't make the path to doing it really clear. Um, we also have a tradition in Minnesota uh, across uh, different secretaries of state of that office being very engaged with K-12 uh, schools. We had the current Secretary of State, Simon, down here last week meeting with some of our high school students. And that's not always a priority for the state-level leader of our elections. So I think there's that. I think the only thing I would add, I, I think what Matt said about culture is is right on. And I think I would... I, culture is a good way to put it. I also would maybe describe it as a social norm. And I think uh, over the course of the pandemic, we have seen some social norms in the United States, um, if not break down, become uh, very stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly have seen that in schools with some of the behavior issues, which I'm happy to say, at least here in Rochester, are getting significantly better but we saw some behaviors of kids who you know were out of school for a year and who went through uh, perhaps uh, economic dislocation in their families and maybe even losing relatives to covid and then of course confounding that with george floyd's murder we, we saw some social norms really break down there was a, a totally outside schools rolling stone did a really interesting article about the shocking change in behavior in concerts of people like throwing stuff at artists and um, talking loudly during like slow songs and things like that. And when I saw that, I was like, yep. So when we talk about voting, in Minnesota, voting is a social norm. And I think schools contribute to that social norm, but they're not the only cause of it. So the fact that we cover voting in our schools, uh, both in the classroom and then also through things like those kind of mock elections, contributes to a larger social norm that parents and caregivers and community people are also reinforcing. Um, and so I, I, I like seeing, I like looking for ways that schools contribute to positive social norms. But those of us in education, I think sometimes we also need to be clear, but it's not only our job. That in fact, if we're going to have a thriving, productive uh, society in which all people have a shot at Uh, living their dreams, um, schools have an indispensable role to play, but you can't look at schools 
to do it all. And we've got to have those expectations of political leaders, community leaders, neighbors, and of course, really, really fundamentally parents and other caregivers. For our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting from Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik. Alongside me is Nathan Leaf. Rich Larson is here, too. We are fortunate to be joined by Dr. Matt Hillman, Superintendent of Northfield Public Schools, and Dr. Kent Pakel, Superintendent of Rochester Public Schools. We are discussing civics education in the state of Minnesota. So both of you just alluded to some recent challenges that have emerged. And Dr. Hillman, I'm curious, what are the primary challenges and obstacles that educators face today when teaching civics in Minnesota? Yeah, so I think there's just a couple of parts of this. I think, number one, we focused on high school instruction in civics, right? But if you actually look at the Minnesota K-12 standards, uh, civics education begins in kindergarten. And I think one of the things that we really see in our elementary schools related more broadly to social studies face is that the amount of content and the real focus appropriately so, in my opinion, on reading and mathematics, uh, and then, of course, giving students a comprehensive education of the arts and sciences, it does put pressure on areas like social studies. So I would say in our schools, one of the things that's a pressure point is how much time we're able to uh, allocate to this across the entire, think about it, our high school students essentially get one semester of civics right now. So time is is always the enemy uh, in terms of content in schools. I also think that, again, being a microcosm of the broader community, everyone knows what the, some of the challenges are that we face related to uh, really what has become a, a hyper-competitive, and I, I think we can even uh, characterize it as a hyper-partisan political environment that is very difficult. And for a person from New York, I'm not afraid to get into those conversations, but um, my fellow Minnesotans sometimes are a little bit more reticent to get into some of those kinds of conversations. And um, as I was thinking about this question, it reminded me of that very famous Mark Twain quote that one of the challenges that we face is that, you know, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth has its chance to get its pants on. And <laughs> and if you think about the, you think about when Twain wrote that, and you think about now the hypersonic speed that those things can transmit, we need to update the analogy. But I do think that there's a little bit of a reticence because people here want to be good neighbors, right? They want to live in a peaceful community. And some of the real hyperpartisan and really the flamethrower tactics that seem to be the norm, which frankly are embarrassing to me, uh, this is one of the reasons I love this show. Public policy this week focuses on policy, right? Not that partisan component. We can come in and talk about the partisan perspectives of it, but we're elevating the conversation. And our conversation has not elevated uh, in the past few years. In fact, it's it's gone backwards in our ability to have a respectful um, conversation about the facts, because we can't even sometimes agree as a society, what are the facts? And the adults have a tremendous amount of influence on how kids think about this. So the first step and the challenge is for the adults to get our act together, frankly. If the adults can get the act together, then we have a chance um, to make sure that students see positive reinforcement of what does it mean to be civically engaged. How do I use critical thinking skills to make sure what I read in a political ad is actually true? Or is it from a particular perspective? And how do I triangulate that information uh, to make sure that I understand, okay, this is what this particular person looks at it from this perspective. This person looks at it from another perspective. Here's where I land on that issue and that I can have my own independent thought and it doesn't have to necessarily be one way or the other. There are multiple ways to get uh, to a conclusion for myself. So I think those are just the societal challenges are, are big for everyone. Dr. Pakel, do you have anything to add to that? You know, I would just, I, I, Matt's completely right about time. And uh, I, I think that something that I actually worry a lot about, especially for our secondary students, so middle and high school, is that we know motivation increases when there's choice and when there is a connection to personal interest. And that is really true of students' motivation to work hard in school. And whenever we add additional requirements, like now ethnic studies has been added, financial education has been added, um, uh, the ethnic the, the, some of the other things were added in the current legislative session, each of which I think independently is a good thing. 
But right now, our our high school curriculum in particular, but I, I would also argue middle school, leaves very little room for individual student choice. And I really worry about that. I really worry that we are uh, not giving enough space for students to pursue particular areas of interest to them. And it's out of the well-intentioned desire to have everyone mastering these foundational skills, but there's only so many hours in the day uh, and there's only so many days in the year. And I think when we look, especially at some of our students for whom school is not their happy place, um, that it's not uh, intrinsically motivating to work hard in an academic project, we really have to weigh the impact of more requirements against the, the real challenge we have with student engagement and learning. We know, and this is not a Minnesota thing, this is a um, national thing, that motivation to learn in, decreases in a linear fashion from kindergarten through 12th grade with the biggest j drops from elementary to middle school and middle school to high school. And um, that's a complex phenomenon. There's no one fix for it. Some of it is about how you teach. Uh, some of it is about those social norms we were talking about before. But part of it is letting these uh, increasingly uh, independent young adolescents start to make some choices about what they what they want to choose. So I know that was kind of a tangent, but I've actually been thinking about this as the legislature added several new requirements in the last session. Again, each of which independently, I totally understand the merits of but I am conflicted about um, more state-level constraints or district-level constraints on kids' ability to focus on things that, that really matter to them. Matt just mentioned the supersonic speed of speech. Can we spend a few minutes on the issue of digital citizenship? Because one of the biggest changes to our civic culture in our lifetimes is the enormous, or is the emergence and spread of social media the associated challenges to educators seem enormous because digital citizenship involves so many relevant uh, topics to students and teachers alike, from news and media literacy to sophisticated disinformation campaigns to cyberbullying to online privacy and digital footprints. Let's talk about how you address these challenges in school districts. Matt, why don't you go ahead first for us? Well, Rich just put up the sign that we have 12 minutes left, and you just opened a can of worms that would take us six weeks to unpack. Uh, we have less than that now, Rich yeah. is telling me. <laughs> well, I, I think that, again, uh, I, the challenges of this are, first of all, how are we making sure that um, working with students, especially when we think about students who are first really using social media, I think some people would be shocked but not shocked to see how young uh, some of our students are when they first get some of their social media accounts, right? Uh, things that are, are authorized by uh, parents and uh, provided to their children. We, we, don't, we don't have those kinds of things on our young student devices uh, in terms of being able to engage in social media, but you'd be shocked how many young students have access to social media. And so then we think about, especially when we hit middle school, and what we know from brain research is that uh, middle school students are undergoing the most significant rewiring of their brains since they were toddlers. And so as a, when I was a, a middle school administrator, I would remind parents that your seventh grader is going to appear less responsible than they were when they were a fifth grader because they are, right? Because their brain is under construction. It's going through this substantial rewiring, if you will. And part of that is a lack of impulse control. And so you, you have kind of this convergence of students' brains who are not able to immediately uh, modulate those impulses and the ability to put something out very publicly uh, that can both build things up, right? We've seen some amazing examples of kids doing really wonderful things uh, using social media as a tool to build, but we more often hear of those things of how it disrupts. And we have seen some of these things in the last few weeks where threats are made and schools have to close down and there are real impacts of this. So the challenge is for students to not have that pause button, not because they don't want to, not because they're being naughty, but because they are developmentally in that space where I don't have that kind of impulse control. So 
this is about more than uh, civics in this case, right? This is about human development. And so that's the challenge that we always faced with middle school students. One of the reasons I love working with middle school students is that emerging sense of justice that you can capture when you're talking about government and citizenship. Um, also helping them learn you know, that impulse control, helping them shepherd themselves through that part of life. But the challenges that that creates are enormous for everyone involved. And it used to be when you were that age and you made a mistake, you knew it, your parents knew it, probably a couple of teachers knew it. Unfortunately, now the whole world can know it. And so that is, I think, for me, one of that greatest challenges is how do we help shepherd middle school kids you know, through that part of their life so that they can move forward and as they emerge from that part, be able to uh, take what they've learned and become civically engaged in a way that's meaningful and thoughtful. Kent, do you have some thoughts on social media and the challenges of it as a school administrator? I, uh, I, I agree completely. The main thing I would say is that I, of particular uh, concern to me is information literacy, which is a com- component of digital literacy. The ability to help kids understand what is true and what is false. And kind of like we were saying in the beginning of this show, if you told me in the early 1990s that there were certain things like like whether you can make change through governmental institutions or you need to do it outside those, I never would have believed it. Similarly, if you had told me that we literally would be today needing to help kids understand that there are such things as facts and that everything is not, a, you know, sort of subjective reality, I would not have believed it, but it is so true and we have got to find ways to lean into helping kids understand that there are facts and that you need to search for the facts to make the right decisions in your personal life as a voter in your professional life Um, i think we have not begun to um, experience the degree of challenge that we need to help kids prepare for in understanding uh, what is true and artificial intelligence is just going to increase that exponentially. And so this is something that um, I'm reading a book on AI uh, in my spare time and trying to think, how do we actually begin to be super intentional? And I don't say that in any partisan way that one side or the other is is guilty. Some of it, like Matt was saying, is just the sort of constant stream of information and the ability, the, the challenge of of breaking through that. But it's also helping young people identify misinformation when they're being presented with that. So this is, I think, just a huge challenge. And I think the civics classroom is one of a number of key places where we need to lean into that. Rich, that's a topic for an entire show. Um, I'm making the note. (laughs) I would would listen to that one for sure. Uh, Matt, what resources are available at the state level to support civics education in Minnesota? Is there professional development for educators? Yeah, so the Minnesota Department of Education, of course, provides uh, districts with quite a few different opportunities, but really that professional development is really focused on the local level. So we certainly look to the Department of Education for the resources that they have, but we're also seeking other options uh, that are available. And in this part, I also would like to just mention, this is where technology uh, can also be very powerful. I'm a big fan of some of the work from a group called iCivics. Uh, in fact, uh, they have a, a wonderful game that I always really appreciated uh, called Do I Have a Right? And so it's a little simulation where you uh, are a law firm, you create your law firm, and then uh, clients will walk in and they will give you a scenario and you have to say whether they are right that they have a, the correct that they have a right or are they wrong? And it's based on the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. So it's a fascinating way for students to, so that's another kind of resource because there are state resources. Of course, there's a lot of local and nonprofit resources, but there's also these vendor resources uh, that can, again, to Ken's point from before, can engage students right where they're at. And so that's just one example of the number of kinds of simulation games that uh, a group like iCivics has. So uh, there's a lot of resources, probably too many, frankly, for people to be able to effectively sift through. Hmm. And Dr. Pakel, how can parents and the broader community support civics education efforts in Minnesota schools? Well, one thing they can do is they can actually do what I hope they do at every subject area, which is ask their kids what they're learning. And I know 
uh, having had kids, that uh, often the answer is nothing or fine, but uh, really probing. And civics is actually a great place to be able to have those conversations because sometimes uh, a parent doesn't necessarily understand what the kid is learning in biology or art or something like that. But, you know, good civics education is about uh, how society faces issues, and so it lends itself to those kinds of conversations. I think also, as Matt was mentioning earlier, there are programs like Youth in Government, which are fantastic, and so for the community, both to uh, support programs like this, and frankly, a lot of them are run by nonprofits, and so to contribute uh, dollars that help those organizations work with schools is also important. The other thing I would add is just to flip the question a little bit. We as educators also need to help parents understand what's happening in our civics curriculum, our civics classroom, so they can have those conversations. It needs to be really a, a two-way street so that we are not just leaving it to the parents saying, well, what are you doing in social studies or what did you do in school today? Um, but we're actually giving them an understanding of the issues that we're engaging their, their children in during the school day so that they can actually extend it and connect it to their family's situation and life experience. Doctors Hillman and Pakel, we are winding down the program. Time flies on public policy this week. We'd like to give you the final word, as we always do for our guests. Kent, what didn't we ask you that we should have asked about civics education? What are your concluding thoughts? You know, the only thing I, I would add is that um, we've talked about civic education in this program, which has been great, um, mostly tied to civic uh, issues, you know, voting behavior and stuff like that. I think there's another purpose of civics education that is that is critical thinking. And that civics is a great way to help kids understand complexity and begin to think on higher levels. I have thought multiple times that if I was teaching to do a deep dive into the decision that Mitch McConnell made as leader of the Senate not to move President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland forward for the Supreme Court for a year would be an unbelievable uh, uh, issue to dig into with high school students because he had complete authority to do it in terms of the rules of the Senate. Uh, and so the mechanics were on his side, but on the other side, there was a deep departure from precedent that the president gets to name their Supreme Court nominees and they at least get a vote. And so there's no easy answer. And so in addition to what the kids might have learned from the civics of looking at that issue, they would have, I think, been very engaged in the complexity of all the machinations that were going on in that particular issue. And I'm sure there's a hundred other current examples that you could do the same thing with. So it's just to say, I think civics education, leaving aside all the stuff that it, make it valuable for our, our, our politic, body politic, I think it's also just, uh, it's good education because it really can uh, get those young brains uh, turning at very high levels. And finally, where can our listeners go to learn more about your school districts and civics education in Minnesota? Dr. Hillman? Yep, so our uh, website, northfieldschools.org, um, most of our civics curriculum items would be uh, through Schoology, so that's our learning management system. So parents who are listening uh, could certainly check out their students' uh, civics course uh, via Schoology. Also, um, Principal Shane Beyer has sent out that every one of our teachers have published a video about what their course is going to cover this year, so people who are interested can also see that. And then, of course, the Minnesota Department of Education Social Studies Standards. If you just Google Minnesota Department of Education Social Studies, you can find out a lot about Minnesota civics education. And Dr. Pakel, how about for your district? We have just flipped our website uh, at the beginning of the school year, because anybody who's worked with a complex website knows is a, a pretty big task. In the months ahead, rochesterschools.org will, uh, like uh, Northfield, have much more about our curriculum available for the community and families. Right now, uh, we are more focused on sort of some of the basic uh, uh, initiatives that are underway in our schools and the district, but we're going to play catch up uh, with Northfield, and uh, over the coming months, you will be able to find out much more about what's happening in Rochester classrooms, not just with civics, but with all of our academic content areas. Dr. Hillman, any concluding thoughts? Uh, I just appreciate uh, KYMN Radio doing shows like this because it gives us an opportunity to highlight this really important piece and that we all have a role in helping our young people see that democracy is not a spectator sport and that it also takes great tact and skill to be able to engage in these kinds of conversations. 
Well, this has been another great informative conversation, but unfortunately we've reached the end of our program. Dr. Matt Hellman and Dr. Kent Pickell, thank you so much for joining us on Public Policy this week. Uh, Joe and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. Yes, thank you both for joining us today. It was great to have this discussion on the very important topic of civics education. And that Thank was- you. Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you, Kent. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm Joe Moravchik, and my co-host today has been Nathan Leaf. Rich has been running the board. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss local government aid. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. Have a great Friday and a great weekend, everyone. Join us next week for Public Policy This Week. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.